You're listening to Plenary Session. Welcome to Plenary Session. In today's episode, you're in for a real treat. First, I'm going to talk about a paper that I've been meaning to talk about on this podcast, and the timing is just right as we're entering medical conference season for us hematologists. Are medical conferences useful? And for whom? By John Yonides. It's a paper from JAMA from a few years ago, and it's quite a gem. Next, I'll be speaking with Dr. Adam Obley. Yes, he's back here for the three-peat. Adam's going to be talking about the breaking articles from the AHA scientific sessions that appeared in the New England Journal of Medicine. We'll talk about Vasepa, fish oil, and vitamin D and methotrexate. And um, I think it'll be an interesting discussion for the audience. We'll push a little bit on those clinical trials and ask if they really show uh, what is claimed. But first, a plug. If you like this episode and you like this podcast, go to the iTunes store and give us five stars. It really means a lot. If you have the time, write a review. It, it really goes a long way. Follow us at plenary underscore session on Twitter or email us plenary session podcast at gmail.com. What are we doing right? What could we be doing better? And what do you want to hear about in the future? We are happy to field your requests. All right, first up, are medical conferences useful and for whom? This is by John Yonides and appeared in JAMA in 2012. It's a paper that I've long enjoyed and I want to take you through it a little bit. And I think the timing is right. We're on the verge of conference season, at least for those of us who practice hematology oncology. The first of our two big conferences occurs next month. And when I go to academic conferences, I think to myself, hmm, are these useful? And if so, for whom? So here's how John begins. Conferences organized by medical societies and related organizations are a dominant feature of the academic, professional, and social life of all health-related disciplines. Indeed, they are the dominant feature. And in fact, I'd go even beyond that and say that there is a class of oncologists that almost lives their entire life going from conference to conference. I think we have at last reached the point in time where if you wanted, you could strictly have a full-time conference-attending job. And I believe that many practitioners, well, I mean, many experts who state they're practitioners, actually do engage in serial conference hopping. So, John cuts to the chase in his article. Do medical conferences serve any purpose? In theory, these meetings aim to disseminate and advance research, train, educate, and set evidence-based policy. Although these are worthy goals, there's virtually no evidence supporting the utility of most conferences. Conversely, some accumulating evidence suggests that medical congresses may serve a specific system of questionable values that may be harmful to medicine and healthcare. Why, that is a shot across the bow. He goes on, first starting by just the sheer waste that comes with traveling to conference, which he estimates to be at 10,000 tons of carbon per year, which is not good if you believe in global warming, uh, which you should because you believe in science if you're listening to this podcast. Um, John's point is that this is a very wasteful. It's a very wasteful thing to do to travel all the way there. Well, it depends on is there a countervailing benefit. And here he gets, he gets quite into it. Next paragraph. The availability of a plethora of conferences promotes a mode of scientific citizenship in which a bulk production of abstracts with no or superficial peer review leads to mediocre curriculum vitae building. Even though most research conferences have adopted peer review processes, the ability to judge an abstract of 150 to 400 words is limited, and the process is more of 
sentimental value. Reviewers may screen primarily the names and affiliations to inform an opinion about the work. And indeed, he's right. Most abstracts are lousy. They're very poor. They tell you absolutely nothing. You cannot make any judgment about the quality of the work. That would be okay if every abstract inexorably led to publication. But John notes, quote, Moreover, many abstracts reported in the medical meetings are never published as full-text articles. And in fact, Paul Massey and I and Foho and other colleagues published a paper in the oncologist a few years ago called Assessing the Eventual Publication of Clinical Trial Abstracts Submitted to a Large Annual Oncology Meeting. And we basically took a set of clinical trials, not just the average abstract, clinical trials where human beings participated in out of their own volition. And we followed many years later how many had led to published papers. And what shocked us was that 40% of them had never been published four to six years after appearing as abstract. That is, frankly, a disgrace. It's a disgrace to the academics who enrolled people on those studies. It's a disgrace to the sponsor who's chosen to suppress those results. It's a disgrace to any journal barriers um, who are not publishing those results. But those tend to be fewer these days because the oncologist has pledged to post and publicly disseminate the results of any study, no matter the result. Therefore, there should be no excuse why you're not publishing these studies. I think people forget that, let me put it this way, many experts like to talk a big game about why we're not adequately recruiting patients on clinical trials. They complain a great deal that there are not more patients going on clinical trials. And it's okay to lodge that complaint. I think that's a legitimate complaint. Uh, why are we not boosting trial enrollment? But if you have some trial results in your own file cabinet that you have not published, and you're simultaneously faulting others for not enrolling on your trial, you have a problem. You need to fulfill your end of the obligation. If you want people to participate on trials, you need to disseminate the results of those trials. You need to share the results with participants. You need to communicate those results effectively. And if you're not doing that, then you really need to look in the mirror first. John goes on. Meetings may also create a branding system that builds the reputations of scientists working in the field or promotes heralding after prestigious opinion leaders. Opinion leaders are experts whose valued utterances can exercise wide influence regardless of, in the absence of, or even against evidence. Yes, that's absolutely right. These conferences are ways to propel your career, uh, a career that may often consist solely of uttering inane things that are factually incorrect or to repeat the things you learned at your latest consulting gig. Um, that's something we hear quite often on the podium or at the after event sessions. John writes, gaining the podium for a plenary presentation or important session at major meeting confers prestige, even though there's little safeguard that what these featured speakers say has any value or quality. And indeed, and that's a little bit of an allusion to the title of this podcast, The Plenary Session, because unlike the actual plenary session, I've tried to make sure that what I convey to you is accurate and has high value, and that's why I want to make the plenary session great again, so to speak. Each professional society or organization creates its cadre of leaders, with meetings making these leaders visible to the members who usually participate passively by listening and applauding when, when appropriate. Given the dynamics, I actually added that part. Uh, John didn't say that applause part. Given the dynamics of large professional societies and conferences, leadership is sometimes judged not on scientific merit, hard work, and originality of thought, but rather on the ability to navigate power circles. Some young scientists may even be discouraged to think that merit, hard work, and originality of thought is what counts. 
Instead, they may struggle to become better positioned within influential societies with the hope that they will someday gain a spot on the podium of the specialty arena. Indeed, I fear that this is in fact the message, the single message that gets conveyed to trainees, which is that if you want to succeed, if you want to be known in your field, the best thing you can do is repeat the tired, trite sayings that are spoon-fed to you by KOLs and to not critically appraise anything and to go with the flow. And that is, in fact, the lesson that we are teaching uh, day in and day out, largely through these meetings and through other forms. John goes on. Power and influence appear plentiful in these meetings. Not surprisingly, the drug, device, biotechnology, and healthcare-related industries make full use of such opportunities to engage thousands of practicing physicians. Thus, exhibitions and infiltration of the scientific program through satellite meetings or even core sessions are common avenues of engagement. Although many meetings require all speakers to disclose all potential conflicts, the majority of speakers often have numerous conflicts. And in fact, this alludes to a paper that I did with Aaron Boothby and colleagues from OHSU, where we looked at the time that these disclosures were posted um, in oral presentations, we found rather interestingly that about 38%, if I recall off the top of my head, it's been a few years, of disclosure slides were flashed faster than a human being can even read. That's the kind of disclosure that makes one concerned that disclosure is not really the goal of showing the slide, but rather the mere checking of a box to say, hey, we're handling this. Don't worry. There's no conflicts here that aren't disclosed. But of course, when you disclose in a way that no one can actually read or comprehend the information, is that disclosure at all? Or is it a token gesture? Back to John. This is the last thing I'd read you. Are medical congresses dinosaurs doomed to become extinct? The future will tell. Medical conferences will disappear if physicians stop paying attention to them, if they do not give them value, and if they do not attend them. And of course, if funders do not fund them. And I think that actually that's not going to happen. I think medical conferences are something that will continue. In my view, I think there's only one real value to medical conferences, and that is to meet up with people that you had previously interacted with, people you trained with, people you used to work with, former colleagues, future colleagues, uh, collaborators across the country. It's a chance to socialize, a chance to spend some time with people like to work with, and people you used to know. Um, that's what I think is a major virtue. Uh, I think there are infinitely better ways that we could disseminate the information. Um, the abstracts that I like to talk about are the ones where the paper is published contemporaneously. But in that case, it's not the presentation that I find of any interest. It's the publication of the paper. Um, clinical trials ideally would one day be run by impartial groups. Uh, in the absence of that, I think the minimum you can do is get viewpoint diversity in the interpretation of those trials. Um, you know, simply having a series of uh, cheerleaders to discuss every single plenary session trial uh, is not really a useful use of the audience. Um, it really does make a lot of the criticisms that John has pointed out um, seem really true, that this is nothing more than a marketing campaign. Um, I think the other thing, the the perverse reason we have so much at conferences is that years before a pivotal trial is run and reported, conferences become the arena in which the way K 
KOLs think about that conference is, is curated, is told to them. I mean, years before we have a phase three trial of a certain drug target or certain drug, we're already hearing that, wow, impressive results were observed in the phase one. This is really going to be transformational. This is going to be a great drug. This is so much better than what we have already. We're peppered. We're preconditioned to believe it's going to be great. So that's how we view those rose-tinted glasses or how we view the phase three trial when it eventually comes. Um, there has to be a better way to stay abreast of practice-changing information in an impartial way. Um, and I strongly believe that current conferences do not fulfill that. And there also has to be a better way to socialize, to catch up with collaborators um, without this backdrop, this sort of conference backdrop that runs counter to so much of, I think, what's good in medicine. So. That's it. Are medical conferences useful? John says probably not. And for whom? Well, if they're useful for anybody, it's for somebody who's about to profit a great deal from the results of some spun study. So that's the bottom line on medical conferences. Uh, I think it's a provocative way to think uh, when you're at conference and try to get the most out of your experience by choosing what's worth your time and what isn't. All right. On that positive note, we're going to go straight to the interview with Dr. Adam Obley. I'm back here in the plenary session HQ with Dr. Adam Mobley. Adam, you are officially the most frequent guest of plenary <laughs> session. What is that? You know, most people this give one the, plenary uh, in their life, but you've given three. This is the three timers club. Is this going to be like SNL where I get a jacket um, for being, you being should. a three timer? You, you should get at least a ring like, like you won the Super Bowl. <laughs> right. Yeah. I think I think that's what's warranted on the plenary session. This is the Super Bowl of podcasts. It's, it is. It is. And we have a, a large and uh, devoted... Uh, fan base. Um, we're getting a lot of emails about this podcast. Um, people have found uh, at least some of what you've said to be interesting. Um, so that's a plus. And uh, I was just telling you before we, we got on the recording that uh, I had the chance to talk to um, some interns and residents who worked under you. They had good things to say. They said you were hands-off attending. Yeah, perhaps. Um, Un unless I, they bring up an issue that really hits a sore spot, then your hands are on attending. <laughs> I, I view it as um, providing them with uh, with autonomy. Um, mm -hmm. I think as a <clears throat> this is something that's developed over years of being a teaching attending, which is um, I feel more comfortable um, letting the residents have the first crack at most issues. Mm -hmm. And you're just you're the safety net in case they were to stumble. That's right. I see. Well, I think that's a good a good philosophy because, as we know, that uh, for some things there's a right answer, some things there's a wrong answer. But for many things, there's a range of acceptable answers, and you have to kind of find your own uh, style and um, and and your own sort of way in which you're going to bring in shared decision making to those kinds of those kind of choices. So that's good. So they spoke very highly of you. That's great to hear. You must have bribed them. Uh, <laughs> We have you back here today to talk about the busy week in the New England Journal of Medicine. You you said yourself you were willing to take on these thorny papers and and take readers through them, and you know I had a chance to look through look through a couple of them. Well, look through all of them, but not read them to the depth that I like to read them. Uh, not all of them, but but I took a deep look on at least one that really caught my attention. <laughs> so where should we start? So. What are we going to talk about? We're going to talk about the fish oil papers. I think that's a great place to start. And the Amarin Pharmaceutical paper. Which is, so let's start with the Amarin Pharmaceuticals. Um, 
We have had, well, I guess let's back up. Let's just, let's start with lipid modifying agents for cardiovascular disease. Yes. Um, there are a number of lipid modifying agents uh, that improve lipid levels in directions you'd like them to go. Uh, the statin class of medications lowers your LDL in the good direction. So it takes a bad cholesterol, makes it lower, which is good. Niacin boosts your HDL. Uh, it also lowers your triglycerides. Uh, and it also lowers your LDL just a touch. Mm -hmm. uh, phenofibrate lowers your LDL a little bit. Um, so these are different drugs. And Zetia lowers LDL. And uh, the PCSK9 drugs lower LDL. Very much. And fish oil. What does fish oil do to cholesterol indices? It's a good question. Um, it appears to, at least in, in the studies that we have today, mm -hmm. um, have a favorable effect on lowering triglycerides. I see. Yeah. Um, there is a question, a, a sort of corollary question, about whether it also raises LDL. Mm -hmm. um, and as you'll see throughout this discussion and throughout the papers in the New England Journal this week, um, that's sort of the crux of part of the debate about whether this was a, a valid trial or not. Uh -huh. A um, good trial. Exactly. Um, but there's a, always been an argument that one of the components of omega-3 fish oil, mm -hmm. um, the DHA component, may have adverse effect and may raise LDL, mm -hmm. um, whereas the EPA component may be lowering triglycerides. And to be fair to the authors of these papers, that's what they contend has been the problem with previous fish oil trials. I see. They didn't have the right Correct. fish oil. It was just not the right fish oil. Right. But I would also say that, that this has to be contextualized. As you mentioned, there have been a number of other agents which have been designed with the intention of changing indices that have proven negative with respect to the clinical outcomes, or in fact, in some cases, harmful. Mm, that's just what I was coming to. The classic data mm -hmm. with AIM High and Niacin, or the HPS2 Thrive trial, mm -hmm. um, which both showed increases in uh, strokes. Um, in patients who are on these agents. And uh, the entire CTEP class of drugs like torcetrapib, which boost HDL, which boosts the good cholesterol and worsen cardiovascular outcomes. So what you dare say on this podcast is that simply because you improve a surrogate endpoint does not necessarily mean you improve clinical endpoints that patients care about. I would dare say that. You would dare say that. Heresy. Surrogates will save us is the title of my my autobiography, <laughs> uh, uh, my quest for the perfect surrogate endpoint. Um, so with that backdrop, uh, this isn't the first time fish oils have been studied for cardiovascular disease. We've had other randomized trials. Would you characterize those trials as glowingly positive or exceedingly positive? <laughs> uh, I would say that uh, the data has been at best mixed in the past. Um, mm -hmm. On, on the clinical effects of fish oil. And yet, in this week's issue of the New England Journal of Medicine, at least online first, we have two randomized control trials of fish oil. One was a marine-derived long-chain N3 omega-3 fatty acid fish oil, mm -hmm. and the other was the Ameren Pharmaceuticals branded uh, Icosapent. Icosapent ethyl for hypertriglyceridemia. Correct. Um, this is a fish oil product that is a little more costly than your average fish oil, is that right? $2,800 per year. Oh boy, that's quite a piece of fish. It is. Let it me ask you something. Would be a lot of very delicious salmon. That's a good question, actually. So you could probably, I wonder how many really fine meals you could enjoy of fish oil. <laughs> Now, and there's a certain type it, of fish. Interestingly, that's yeah. been a, a criticism of some of the, the past studies of fish oil is that they've often been conducted in populations which have much greater intake of, of um, nutritional fish. I see. Um, as opposed to um, maybe Western populations. That's uh, basically, uh, that's a contamination of your control arm. That's like the Potentially. PH. Yeah. You're eating all this delicious, oily fish. Right. And uh, of course, the fish oil can't work better on top of that. 
Now, let me ask you, there is a certain type of fish that uh, if you cut it a certain way, uh, it's actually poisonous. Yes. And if you cut it a different way, um, it's a delicious fish. Fugu. Oh, is that the fish? Uh-huh. Well, the fish is called, it, it's a puffer fish, but um, the, the dish itself is called fugu, I believe. I see. Um, and, and what the authors have done here with the fish oil is they've done the same cutting of the fish oil, would you say? They've cut <laughs> out the bad oils and they got the good oils. Supposedly. Supposedly. So what's your, what do you think about this paper? Yeah, what do you, what do you think listeners should know about it? Yeah, I think, um, <clears throat> you know, in its design, um, the trial is not bad. Um, I think one of the major criticisms, which I think is valid, is that it's 2018 and we're still doing 8,000-person randomized controlled trials that are overwhelmingly male and overwhelmingly white. Mm. Um, so 70% um, male in this study. And indeed, in their subgroup analysis by gender, um, the apparent benefits that were manifest in the overall trial did not appear in women. Or at least it wasn't statistically significant. Mm-hmm. But that's more of a general criticism about, about all who trials, we're enrolling right? in randomized controlled trials well, these Minorities days. and women, unfortunately, are not underrepresented. underrepresented yeah. Absolutely. I think the, the larger um, question that was posed here and which raises the, the question of whether this trial is valid um, has to do with the, the comparator arm here. Yeah, I think um, so too. And that the, uh, the use of a non-inert um, mineral oil um, as the placebo um, has raised questions about whether that may have interfered particularly with statin absorption mm-hmm. um, and therefore sort of attenuated the, the well-established benefits of statin therapy in a secondary prevention population. Mm-hmm. So I guess I, that's, that's what caught my eye about this paper. And I guess there's a few pieces of data that suggest that that's true. One, if you got assigned to the control arm of this medicine, the control arm of this trial, you were swallowing capsules of mineral oil. And you and I both know, although we both enjoy drinking a daily dose of mineral oil, we don't usually <laughs> take as much as they were swallowing. Right. One of the things that that led to was I noticed in the adverse events, uh, which I guess are GI the supplement. Side effects. Yeah, yeah, they have more diarrhea. Statistically, seen even more diarrhea on the control right. arm. Eleven percent. Uh, mineral oil is a laxative. It is absolutely. Yeah. So I mean, that's saying you're swallowing a fair bit of mineral oil, if you ask me. And then the next thing I noticed was the LDL went up by like about uh, 10, 12 points if you were on the control arm. Yeah, that's right. So the LDL rose um, in the control arm. And I think even beyond that, um, looking at the CRP levels, the high sensitivity CRP levels were almost 30% higher at the end of the trial in the group that was on the control on the mineral oil. And we don't see that, for instance, in the trials of PCSK9 drugs. We see the LDL in the control arm is, you know, they brought it down to 70 something and Mm -hmm. it just stayed at 70 something year after year after year. When your control arm LDL is going up, you start to worry that the drugs you already have on board to mitigate the LDL to improve cardiovascular outcomes um, may not be exerting their full benefit. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely true. And if you accept the the theory of sort of the pleiotropic effects of statins, right. that they also, beyond lowering LDL, have effects on vascular endothelial function, um, anti-inflammatory properties, um, then even sort of their post hoc subgroup analysis here, which tried to identify whether or not the benefits still uh, were apparent um, in a group that had the LDL go up or LDL stayed the same in the control arm, I don't think that fully captures all of the potential benefits of statins. Right. Um, so if indeed this um, supposedly um, inert control arm of mineral oil um, was affecting statin absorption, then that certainly skewed the trial in a way that would have been favorable to the, the fish oil arm. Yeah. Um, I saw somebody say online something like, um, 
look, even if the control arm had some rise in LDL, we know that the benefit here is bigger than what you would expect if you drop someone's LDL from 86 to 72. Right, but that, but, that assumes uh-huh, yes. that the entire effect of statins is on LDL lowering, right. or that the exactly, entire benefit. Right. And we know from, from multiple trials that that's not, not the case. Yeah, and, and I, so I, that's, that's one point that I think is very good. And the other point I wanna make is also, um, a lot of what we know about statins benefits um, is when you add more statin or increase the dose of statin, you may get a little bit of better benefit. Um, nobody really knows what happens when you start to impair the absorption of statin. Right. And the people in whom the absorption is impaired and their LDL rises, those might be people who are really sort of deriving a lot of benefit from the trial. You know, the similar thing that I, I'm struggling to kind of articulate this well, uh, in sprint, in the control arm, if you were put on blood pressure medicines and you know, put on like one or two medicines and boom, your blood pressure comes below target um, and you're asymptomatic, in the real world, we'd let you ride at that. We'd say that's okay. But in that trial, they actually backed off blood pressure medicines, which is a non-standardized move. And so what might happen is that's something that we really don't know what the effect of that non-standardized move is. And we don't know what the effect of taking your statin with a fistful of mineral oil is. Right. Oh, that's that's exactly right. And I think, you know, there's some, um, I found it very interesting that that the lead author for this paper, um, both in the discussion in the paper itself, but then also in in sort of media Mm -hmm. quotes, um, has emphasized that it should not be extrapolated um, beyond this formulation of fish oil. And that argument sort of follows this line of, of thinking that, well, that other fish oil has bad oil in it exactly. um, that raises LDL. So you can't make that argument and then have that be your control arm too, <laughs> right, right, being a bad right, oil that raises LDL. Oh, oh fascinating. Mineral oil is just, is just a bad oil that raises LDL. Right. At least it did maybe through a different mechanism, through absorption. Right. Uh, you just can't have it both ways. You that can't, can't be your case that we can't extrapolate it, but then also that's your control arm. Yeah, that, uh, I, I, I hadn't seen that. See, this is what these are the gems that Adam Michael brings to the <laughs> podcast. Um, I did notice that the the PI of this study, who is a, a noted and venerable authority and done a lot of really good work, so I don't want to criticize too broadly, but I do want to say that I thought there are some quotes in the media that I thought were shocked me. One thing um, that I noticed about this clinical study was something that I had noticed about a clinical study I saw a few years ago, which is the Paradigm HF study. Mm-hmm. The PIs of both of those studies took to editorials or the media to point out how many zeros were in their p-value. Uh, in Medscape, this PI pointed out that we have a lot, I've never seen a p-value with so many zeros. And uh, for Paradigm HF, that p-value has a lot of zeros. And I think people want the audience to believe that the number of zeros in a p-value is telling you something about the validity of a trial. But that is not the case because bias in trial is not, the p-value is not like a unidimensional number that captures (laughs) bias. Bias in your control, in your design, in your blinding, in your double drug run-in periods, that is not captured by a p-value. Yeah, no, I find that this is sort of an intractable problem among, you know, very bright people who do medicine to think that higher p-values or lower p-values um, represent some sort more of greater truth. strength mm-hmm. or more truth in the trial. Um, and really, it's just telling you what the likelihood of the results being statistical chance within the parameters of the way the trial was designed, within including the, par- the control. Thank you. Within the parameters of the way the trial was designed. So this is plenary session P equals zero 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 one because this is a truthful podcast. But no, that's what I'm going to start advertising right. <laughs> just so people, I, I might as well use the misinformation to my benefit. But um, is this trial the reason why for certain classes of medications with broad population benefit, which fly in the face of pre-existing bodies of literature, is this the kind of trial 
that you need a confirmatory randomized trial. You know, we used to have two RCTs for a reason, right. for, re for this kind of study. Yes, I, I think we definitely need a confirmatory trial. Um, if you consider that um, by some estimates, this would be a $3 billion a year drug, um, and considering that we're going to be using it in a very broad population, mm -hmm. I think we do need the confirmatory trials. And I would go a step further. Um, I would say that we need to um, think about a comparative effectiveness study um, that also looks at other agents which are added to patients in a secondary prevention population um, who are already on maximum statin therapy. I would love to see a study that compares um, I, I think we still need the placebo-controlled arm here, yeah. a, a real placebo, and right, actually right. there are some upcoming trials that may be better designed to answer that question. Right. Um, but ultimately, I think then we should have some comparative effectiveness data comparing it to PCSK9s and azetamib and anything else that's been proposed as an add-on to statin therapy. Right, right. Um, and and a, a con yeah, uh, in addition to PCSK9, as an alternative to PCSK9, uh, whether and a true placebo arm. Right. Yeah. It, it, you know, if you accept that the results of this trial are true, um, then it certainly represents a better value proposition than PCSK9 inhibitors. Even at, even at that $2,800 price correct, point. Correct. Even at a $2,800 price point, because the relative risk reduction here was about 25%. It's about 15% in four-year. Um, Do you think it's priced that high because of the price of the fish that's included? <laughs> <laughs> I, I suspect it's, well, I shouldn't say that. Um, yeah, you suspect that the, it's not that kind of fish. No, I, I suspect that... Um, I suspect that the price may be high because this is essentially the only product that this company has in the pipeline, mm. if I understand things correctly. I see. Well, um, you know, sometimes the FDA has to approve a drug because a company is uh, running low on uh, on capitalization. I mean, that's, that's just what I learned from Janet Woodcock. But, you know, I think different people have different philosophies of, of what those stand regulatory standards is. But sometimes if a company's low on money, you got to approve the drug. I mean, that's a tie. That's, I see that in regulatory language. Okay, so what else can we say? I mean, I guess I would say that, yeah, that's, I mean, my takeaway here is that, is this an inert placebo? Is it a harmful placebo? And if it's a harmful placebo, what does that mean about the therapeutic effect? And and I think this is the this is the paper. This is why for certain questions, we need two trials. I think uh, you want a lesson, this is the lesson. That's the real takeaway lesson here. And I thought that lesson is also true for Paradigm HF. Uh, and, and don't even tell me that this trial they put out is called a confirmatory trial, you know, this seeding trial for hospitalists in the hospital, right. Um, a con <laughs> Yes, no, uh, the, you're talking about the yeah, most recent yeah, sort of Protect yeah. HF, or I forget what the new name is. I but, forget, yeah. Um, it should be Pioneer, called Pioneer, Pioneer HF, HF right. Pioneer HF. Uh, it, it should be called um, uh, uh, Hospitalist uh, Market uh, Seating Trial, uh, <laughs> Hospitalist Drug Dinner Trial 2. <laughs> for the future drug dinner of hospitalists, this is the trial for you. Right, and especially galling that the primary endpoint was just the reduction in BNP <laughs> in a drug which affects BNP levels. Of course. By its very but, nature. But when you admit a patient with heart failure, you sequentially check the BNP and titrate medications to that, do you not, Dr. No, I do not. <laughs> because um, it's been debunked in randomized. Correct. Right? randomized trials, that strategy leads to more intensive therapies for heart failure without benefiting patients. Mm. And that's the problem with bioplausibility. Uh, that's a great example of something that does sound quite bioplausible um, and uh, actually failed in randomized testing to improve outcomes patients care about. And BNP is also another surrogate endpoint for, again, what people care about, at least when you use it in that way to track outcomes. Okay. This is probably one of the things that the residents told you I have strong feelings about. I see. So, <laughs> yeah, they say that he's quiet for most things, but then on a certain topic, he just lit up. <laughs> um, 
Any any thoughts about the uh, the paired study, the vital trial, the marine fatty acid study? Yeah, I, I don't have a lot to, to say about this other than to point out there were some differences in the population here. Mm-hmm. Um, this was more of a primary prevention trial, whereas the population um, for Vasepa yeah. was more of a secondary prevention. I think about 70% were in a secondary prevention mm-hmm. um, group. Um, and again, they used a formulation which is, was sort of a more traditional formulation of fish oil, which included both EPA and DHA. Um, I, I would describe it as a solidly negative trial. Similarly for vitamin D. and uh, I, it, I think that's important, especially the vitamin D part of this, because of the, um, the many years now of purported um, benefits of vitamin D based mainly on observational data that have not panned out for multiple indications um, in randomized trials. Well, you mean not yet, because we need a few more, at least a few more dozen trials before I'm convinced. Well, you know, we have dozens of diseases that vitamin D could potentially treat. Exactly. So I noticed something interesting about the vital trial. We have a sample size of um, 12,900 in about each arm. Mm-hmm. See, you know, I don't like these underpowered studies. If you get to about <laughs> 14,000, 15,000 per arm, then you're talking. Right. You know? Exactly. That's when you can start to find the real wheat from the chaff. You separate the truth. Um, Here's a thought for you, a sort of tangential. How do you think about this? There's a lot of investment in these polygenic risk scores to dis, you know, help people decide is taking a statin right for them for primary prevention. I guess one of the things I always struggle with um, from you know the clinical side of things is that I find that they're, they're different groups of people. There's a group of people in whom you know increased clarity about a long-term risk um, you know, whether your tenure risk is 10.5% or 7.2% or 6.8%, it's not really going to change their mind about whether or not they want to take a daily pill. There's some people who just don't want to take a daily pill. That's part of just the type of person they are. Right. There's some other people who even a very minute improvement in all in absolute risk reduction, 3.2 to 3.1, they'll say, sign me up, I'll take the pill every day. And so you really need this group in the middle, these people in whom, like, this extra bit of information would presumably help them make a move decision. The needle. Yeah, no, that, move the that's needle. exactly right. And I think there's sort of the corollary here, and we've talked about this on the podcast, of knowing what the threshold is before undertaking diagnostic testing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's exactly the same here. If you have a patient who um, is not going to change their decision um, based on the results of the test, then there's no point in, in doing these sorts of expensive polygenic tests to further clarify risk. It would be like a very expensive polygenic test to to suggest to you that you probably should exercise three times a week. Right. <laughs> Stop smoking. <laughs> Stop smoking, right? And actually, yeah. that's what I find many of the conventional risk calculators um, most useful for when we're talking about statin therapy. Um, I'll pull it up in the in the visit, and we'll look at you know what the 10-year risk of ASCVD is. Um, oh, and, and we can talk uncl- about what, unclick smoking correct. and see what it drops to. Or we can adjust yeah. their blood pressure and right. show what the other... Smoking tends to be the most powerful... Um, in that in that visit, but I you know it's useful not just in talking about statin therapy, but also talking about what are the relative benefits of statin therapy compared to smoking cessation. Ah, oh, that's well put, and I think that's that's a good pearl for the listeners, the, the trainees. Yeah, you know when you see these risk calculators, I think. Um, even before you're in the patient room, you should. I, I love to pull them up and kind of play around with them for a little bit and just kind of get a gestalt sense of like, what is driving risk in these calculators? What happens if you kind of play with the parameters? You know, I started doing that when I was a resident and I was just shocked by the differential contribution of HDL and LDL to these right. kind of calculators. You change the HDL a few percentage points in the right way and boom, the risk is really <laughs> mitigated. You know, and it's a much right. more powerful predictor, at least in risk, at least prognostic 
predictive is another story. True. Yeah. Um, you, you know, the other, of course, is age. Is right. Being one of, of course. The most, <laughs> the yeah. most predictive, unfortunately. Mm, um, I've yeah. yet to, to find a patient where I can convince them that they just need to be 10 years younger. Yeah, I know. This The modifiable, non-modifiable, that's a problem in this world. Yeah. Age is a terrible, terrible risk factor for everything. All right, so I think um, that's a nice, nice takeaway message about fatty acids and how um, one company was able to cut the right oil away from the wrong oil. They, they're performing the puffer fish um, dissection <laughs> of oil. Uh, let's shift gears and talk about methotrexate. Now, for years you have been telling me there's one drug we need to study to prevent atherosclerotic events, and that's methotrexate. <laughs> <laughs> I have not been saying Oh, that. you haven't? No, oh. no. You must have me confused with someone else. I must have had you confused. But Maybe Dr. Ridker. Dr. Ridker. Well, $60 million is about the right amount of money to test a hypothesis like this, don't you think? It should be sufficient. It should be sufficient. So what, um, I know, I guess one thing let's talk about is like the pretest probability this was going to work whether or not this is the best use of money. Um, but maybe first, let's talk about what would they test and what, sure. and what did they find, yeah. You know, the essential idea here, and that's actually well established in the observational literature, is that for patients with um, with inflammatory conditions, um, rheumatoid arthritis, psoriatic uh, psoriasis or psoriatic arthritis, um, that those patients have a much higher than average risk of coronary disease. Mm-hmm. Um, and that anti-inflammatory treatments for those patients lower that risk. Um, I, you know, certainly from my clinical experience, I believe that that's true. I have seen many very severe cases of coronary disease in patients with inflammatory conditions. Right, like and lupus, early coronary yeah, disease. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, of course. Um, I think the question is, is whether we can extend that knowledge about the inflammatory hypothesis about coronary artery disease and atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease um, to a primary prevention or even a secondary prevention population that doesn't have those conditions to right. begin with. Right, right. Um, and this has been a, a subject of study for, for this particular group. It was the canakinumab trial a few years ago, which is anti-IL-1 beta, mm-hmm. um, and trying to, to determine whether in, in those populations who don't have these conditions, um, whether trying to modify inflammation affects the risk of ASCVD. Mm, that's the drug that prevents lung cancer. Is that the case? <laughs> Perhaps. <laughs> that, that, that was sort well, of the some people believe provocative that. finding mm. from that study. Mm. It also seems to substantially increase your risk of fatal infections. I guess there's you win some, you lose some. But um, And it recently rejected by the FDA uh, as of mid-October, Novartis put out some press release. Um, but okay, so you're saying that you're making this point, which is that, look, even though we observed a relationship about inflammation in a very severe disease state, the hypothesis was how far down the risk spectrum can you extrapolate that idea and and can it be modified via exogenous drugs that presumably act by reducing inflammation? Exactly. And that was the hypothesis here with the low-dose methotrexate trial. Mm-hmm. And, and, and uh, I'm no expert, but um, like they say in oncology, um, if you can fit a laser pointer between the curves, you can give the plenary session at the national meeting. Uh, these, these curves, I don't think you can fit a laser pointer, even when they blow them up. Um, they are really superimposable. So this is a stone-cold negative study. Agreed. About 4,500 people and absolutely nothing. Can we say that this should be the last study of low-dose methotrexate for cardiovascular prevention? That's a great question. Um, I, I think so. Um, I think particularly when you factor in the, the added risk that patients who are receiving methotrexate um, were exposed to in terms of uh, infectious complications, 
Um, without an apparent benefit, I think it would be hard to justify further randomized trials here. Yeah, I think, I mean, perhaps the most appealing thing about this trial is that methotrexate is off patent and is relatively low price. That's true. Um, but besides that, it's really stone cold negative. And, you know, I guess part of what I wonder about is, you know, ever since Rezuvastatin, Jupiter, Jupiter. Mm-hmm. CRP, I mean, there's just a lot of interest in the inflammation hypothesis around cardiovascular illness. I wonder how much of that is driven by a genuine belief that that is causative versus the need for resuvastatin to carve out market share. Uh, and, you know, that was one of the th- How can resuvastatin distinguish itself from right. Atorva, which really had carved out market share? And Atorva was about to go generic mm-hmm. back in those years. Uh, now it is generic. Um, and I think it's it was a great challenge. And so we saw just a, a lot of ships being launched in this inflammation space. Um, and I guess some of us uh, were never too optimistic about it. Um, but I guess... Um, you know, they, they did the study, they answered the question very definitively, and I think uh, that's definitive answer is going to be heard pretty clearly. Yeah, no, I agree. I think um, the takeaway from all of these studies um, is that statins are incredibly important in secondary prevention, mm-hmm. um, regardless of what the proposed mechanism of their action is. I think when it comes to statins and secondary prevention, there is no debate. I mean, people believe that's very important. Absolutely. Let's talk about vitamin D supplements to prevent cancer. You know, I was reading recently about how had it not been for Linus Pauling's sort of obsession with vitamin C, we wouldn't have been on the vitamin and mineral craze quite as hmm. much. That's an interesting perspective. Yeah, and it was about like, you know, he was just a total devotee for the um, vitamin industry. Um, and and, and um, I guess the other takeaway is, you know, two Nobel Prizes doesn't make you smart in everything, right? <laughs> you know, I, I, we really do have this kind of uh, idea in science that um, once somebody wins a Nobel Prize, um, y- you see like an article that says, you know, 40 Nobel Prize winners against, uh, you know, some, some political event. It's like it's really kind of irrelevant to their uh, physics Nobel Prize or right. Right, their, their Nobel Prize for Alpha Helix, this uh, political science event. Uh, but yet there is this kind of cult of um, uh, authority. No, that's true. It's a triumph of marketing. Triumph of marketing. Um, vitamin D is a substance that, uh, I mean, there's really a, a cottage industry. We talked about it in the last podcast, Liz Zabo's uh, really good yeah, paper about that's right. you know just the push to test the level. And this was a large 25,000 person uh, randomized trial. They highlight in the abstract that they include over 5,000 patients who are African-American uh, in the results section. So they are making kind of a concerted effort to address um, you know, some of these historical inequities in terms of trials. Um, and they ran this large uh, randomized control trial, and again, absolutely no benefit. That's right. And as I say, I think this continues to add to, there have been so many conditions. The number is now legion for which people have proposed that vitamin D is going to be some sort of cure-all. But even in the settings in which we thought it was relatively well validated, and the one that we we thought was the case, um, was in preventing falls in community-dwelling elderly people. But even that's come into question. Mm -hmm. So I think with the exception of people who are profoundly vitamin D deficient and who have bone mineral disease as a consequence, I don't know that there's any proven benefit to vitamin D beyond that. Mm. And I remember one vitamin D trial, which I believe was in JAMA about a decade ago, uh, where it's like a single IM high-dose vitamin D shot, and the end point was like falls, and falls seemed to go higher in the group that was woozy after all that vitamin D. <laughs> um, 
So I think you're right. I mean, vitamin D is, aside from a very narrow uh, population in whom it um, potentially has a benefit, really should not be widely prescribed or taken, even among those of us who live under the Pacific Northwest skies. Especially in the very high doses in which it's often yeah. marketed. I think that hits the high points of this this uh, this set of, and what were these? These were paired for the AHA scientific sessions? Correct. Yeah, and we talked a little bit about the angiotensin neprilysin inhibitor uh, and how that I really think is pretty much a seeding trial. Listeners may wonder what a seeding trial is. A seeding trial is a trial that doesn't fundamentally answer a biological or clinical question well, but it is a trial that um, gives you just this veneer of information that you can then uh, use at uh, marketing efforts, uh, drug dinners. Uh, You can pass out reprints of this. I suspect there'll be a lot of reprints of this article, and they'll be passed out at fancy meals, uh, and they'll get some local, um, you know, uh, pseudo-KOL to give the local talk, and um, we will see more use of Entresto, uh, which is really their goal, which is to push this drug. Yeah, no, and I think this probably represents in some way a change in the strategy when, you know, originally the idea was that this should be started in stable outpatients with heart failure. And when it didn't take off in that setting, they think they've changed gears and now they're looking to start it on inpatients. Right. Because a stable outpatient, um, a lot of doctors will legitimately say, like, you know, he's doing just fine. It took me a while to get them to the right um, ACE inhibitor dose, the maximum dose that they can tolerate well. Let's not rock this boat. Um, and plus, it's one trial. It had a double drug run-in period. Valsartan right. at 160 milligrams BID is being tested. 160 milligrams uh, BID is yeah, being tested absolutely. against enalapril, uh, 10 milligrams BID, which is sort of an unequal right. ARB and ACE dose. There's which a difference again, in blood pressure. Even after all the criticism they received for that comparison, it was the same one they used in this study. <laughs> right, and that's what kills me. They're, you know, but I, uh, it's it's like the it's like the um, the Donald J. Trump of studies. When confronted <laughs> with information, you were wrong. You double down on your being wrong. Because it, to do otherwise is to admit that you were wrong. Right. Um, that study still needs to be repeated with Valsartan 160 BID as the comparator. Yeah, and I don't understand why that is so difficult. Um, when I present the Entresto trial to like medical students, that's the first thing they say. They say, this is a trial of A, where A is a novel drug, plus B. B is an accepted drug at maximum dose, versus C, where C is a different drug at half maximal FDA approved dose. So what does A add? I don't know. You need A plus B versus B. Uh, that will tell you what A adds. Uh, exactly. That's just science 101. All right. So I think we did a good job of giving the readers, uh, you know, I can only imagine that the AHA scientific sessions provided the same kind of summary that you and I just provided. Well, uh, you know, to be fair, there were there were folks who leveled the same criticisms against uh, the, the VASEPA trial. That's true. Uh, yeah. So there, there are people out there who are thinking critically about, about these studies and what they mean. And I hope that some of them work uh, in the U.S. Food and Drug Administration because the Vicepa trial, you know, they have the expanded marketing. Uh, they're seeking expanded marketing That's authorization. Correct. And, um, you know, it'll be up to the FDA to decide whether or not um, uh, they grant that. And I think it would be perfectly reasonable and perhaps prudent and the best course of action uh, to ask for a confirmatory study. Um, and, and actually, some of the scientific staff at the FDA had raised this as one of the concerns in their, mm-hmm. their initial filings. Oh, I hadn't seen that. Okay. What else can we say about this? I think that's it. Anything else caught you in my eye in the New England Journal of Medicine? Not recently. Not recently. Well, actually, to the credit of the New England Journal, I think um, I did see that they did sort of an interactive case that was pertinent to social determinants of health instead of the usual 
um, the usual sort of diagnostic fare, and lots of credit for that. Social determinants of health, are those important? They are, turns out. Turns out, hmm. Um, but um, they don't end in MAB, do they? <laughs> they don't, they don't. <laughs> and um, and uh, somehow uh, ameliorating some of those are often uh, low cost and perhaps even high value interventions? Many are. Um, I think the problem is is that they're often held to different standards. So um, for instance, when I talk with policymakers who are considering um, public housing or uh, <coughs> permanent supportive housing options, mm-hmm. um, which have been in the literature for many, many years and are associated with improved health outcomes, reduced utilization of high cost services like the emergency department and inpatient services, the question that often comes up is what is the return on investment? the expectation that there has to be a positive ROI to justify social interventions. Hmm. And that's a different bar than we hold medications to. Yeah, I'm not sure there's a what the positive ROI is for society for regorafenib, uh, you know, this marginal cancer drug used in the fourth line. Um, that's a good point. Yeah, so they're asking what, what added value are they going to get back to the federal budget? Um, or the state budget. The state budget. Right. That's fascinating. Um, well, I want to thank you for coming on plenary session. My pleasure. I know you're a, you're a busy man. I'll expect my jacket at the next visit. You you will get uh, you will get the plenary session commemorative four timer mug uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that uh, that you can then uh, receive your uh, KOL coffee from all the <laughs> students that you need to collaborate with. Um, but uh, yeah, so I think uh, it's been great. I think it's a very uh, accurate reading of, of these articles, and uh, I think that um, they were interesting, they're worth discussing. The Vazepa story I don't think is done yet. Um, and um, I'll tell you the one thing I know for sure that I won't do, I won't be going home and drinking half a bottle of mineral oil a day. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that's a clear takeaway that we can all agree on. I think that's absolutely true. All right, well, thank you, Adam. Thanks for coming on. My pleasure. You've been listening to Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy. I've been your host, Vinay Prasad. If you like this podcast and you like this episode, go to the iTunes store and give us five stars. It really means a lot. If you have the time, write a comment. If you want to give us feedback, you can follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session, or you can send an email to plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. We like to know what you're thinking. What could be be better? What topics could we cover? Um, how can we improve? Finally, Plenary Session owes a debt of gratitude to Kiana Klossner, Audrey Tran, and Ian Straley. <laughs>